So Julian was a Roman emperor. And he was one of those Roman emperors that wanted to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. But he wrote this very telling thing after he had a chance to observe the life of these Christians in his empire, third century. He said, their success as a Christian lies in their charity to all. They take care for not only their own poor, but ours as well. So here's this non-Christian, atheist Roman emperor who wants to do away with Christianity. And at the end of the day, he's looking at this movement that's literally kind of taken over the empire. And he's looking very carefully and going, what is going on? What is this movement? Why are these people? Why is such powerful witness? And at the end of the day, he writes this to his constituents, if you will, and says, they're generous. They're, with their money, with their resources, with their, they're eye-popping, radically generous. And I can't explain it. Only thing I do know is that they are literally taking over the empire. He concedes, as Roman emperor, to the radical generosity. Now, here's the amazing thing. Historians tell us that when these plagues would hit these major cities, people would throw their family hours members out into the streets because they didn't want to die. People were dying by the hundreds of thousands. And a bishop, I think it's the third century, would gather all the Christians in the city square and goes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around and we're going to take these people that have been thrown down the streets. We're going to bring them to our homes. We're going to take care of them. And they did. And an unbelieving non-Christian world looked at the witness and said, what in the world happened to you? And they said, Jesus. We see this not just in history, but we see this in the first century when we read the book of Acts. Because it's documented for us by the historian Luke. For example, we find stuff like this, right? And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart. No one claimed that any of his possessions was owned, but they shared everything that they had. There was absolutely no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levi from Cyprus, who had the apostles called Barnabas, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The Holy Spirit is powerfully working the life of the first church Christians. And what do we see as the evidence that God is alive and at work in them? Radical, eye-popping generosity. So much so that there were no needy persons among them. Now, I want you to think for a moment about this. The engine that drove their witness that changed the world among other things, was this radical generosity. Can I ask you something? Is the gospel spreading like that here in Chicago? Is the gospel spreading like that here in Chicago? Because as non-Christians look at you and me and how we live, they go, oh, what happened to you? What, what possibly could have happened to you that makes you that generous? When you look at national trends, I shared this morning, I don't know whether to cry or laugh. I don't know whether to cry or laugh. Because here's what the national trends tell us in terms of how generous Christians are in this country, okay? This is almost all facts from book, the book Passing the Plate, written by sociologists Christian Smith, Michael Emerson, and Patricia Snell. First slide, please. Um, more than one quarter of American Protestants give away no money at all. Now, I say Protestants because, you know, this doesn't include Catholics and, and other folks. One quarter, 25% of Protestants, American Protestants, 
That's uh, you and me give no money at all, zero. Second, evangelical Protestants, that would be most of us here, score the best. Only 10% of evangelical Christians, only 10%, don't give anything. However, next slide. 36% of evangelical Protestants report that they give away less than 2% of their income. During the Great Depression, same group of people gave 3.3%. I just, uh, during the most economically and financially depressed time in this country's history, they gave more, more radically generous than Christians today. Wow. Uh, next slide, please. Only about 27% of evangelical Protestants tie. That's the spiritual discipline giving 10%. But 25, one every four person in a typical church like this actually does the biblical principle of tithing. Now, here's the thing, guys. These principles and these statistics wouldn't be so depressing if you didn't know how much money Christians actually have in this country. Can I show you those slides? Next slide. Committed Christians, that's you and me, who say that faith is very important to them and those who attend church at least twice a month earn more than $2.5 trillion in this country. And by the way, when you large the number to churchgoers, so people who kind of casually attend, the statistic is $5.2 trillion. But committed Christians in this country make $2.5 trillion, and these, these sociologists say that they could be admitted, just Christians in terms of how much they make, they themselves alone could be admitted to the G7, the group of world's seven largest economies. <laughs> ah! If these, next slide please, American Christians gave away just 10%, just tithe of their after-tax earnings, we would have $80.5 billion. Billion dollars. $80.5 billion to spiritually and physically meet the needs of people. Next slide please. But the median annual giving, annual, annual giving for an American Christian today is two. Hundred dollars, which is just over half a percent. Um, just to give you some perspective, uh, Americans earning less than next slide, please. Ten thousand dollars gave two point three percent of their income to religious organizations, whereas those who earned seventy thousand dollars gave only one point two percent. Isn't it true? Have you have you noticed how poor people tend to be more generous? Yes, than wealthy people. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Do you know what we can do with $8.5 billion? Can I just put some statistics up there? What we can do with $8.5 billion, here's, here's one. A $10 billion would sponsor 20 million children for a year. Next slide, please. Uh, $303 million would sponsor 150,000 indigenous missionaries in countries close to religious workers. The reason why that's important is because Christians, uh, Christian sort of historians have talked about how the gospel has yet to reach the ends of the earth. There are numbers of people who have yet to hear the gospel because there aren't missionaries going to these indigenous countries. And they know how money and lack of resources to supporting these missionaries might be the only thing that's keeping us from making sure the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. $2.2 billion, next slide please, will triple the current funding of Bible translation, printing, and distribution. Next slide. $600 million will be enough for eight Christian colleges in places like Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, where we could train, equip pastors. Next slide, please. Six billion would provide universal primary education for all children. 
in the world. Nine billion will bring clean water to most of the world's poor. And 13 billion will provide basic health care and nutrition for everyone in the world. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where to laugh. I don't know where to get depressed. It was a combination of both this week. As I was just looking at those and just praying and thinking about it. Um, we don't talk a lot about money and giving in our church. Um, so if you came today and your friend was like, hey, I want you to come to church with me. And you're sitting there going, see, this is why I'm coming to church. Pastors talk about money. <laughs> I want you to know, ask around. We don't talk a lot about money in our church regularly for two reasons. Number one. We have a lot of non-Christians, people kind of on faith journey that come to our church. And frankly, if you don't know Jesus, the rationale for why the Bible says you need to give to it just won't make any sense. So we want to be sensitive to that and go, hey, we're not going to force it down people's throats. We want to be sensitive to the fact that people are all over the spiritual journey in our church, and we want you to feel welcome. That's one reason. Number two, the reason why we don't talk about money and finances more in our church is because your pastor is a coward. This was really hard this week, man. Because just thinking about this sermon series, you guys, I thought about how, I'll just be honest with you, you know, I take sort of pride in the fact that I challenge you, I'm in your face about what it means to love Jesus and all that stuff. And then it comes to, when it comes to probably, according to the Bible and Jesus, the most important thing that's related to how your relationship with Christ will be, and the Bible says it over and over again, the primary thing, your pastor is a coward and I don't want to talk about it. So I said this morning, if you've been coming to our church, you're part of our church family, you need, I, I need to ask you for forgiveness for actually lacking boldness and courage in talking about this in the way that Jesus needs to. So I'm sorry for that. Because if I really loved you and cared about you and your relationship with Jesus, I would talk about this in a way that makes sense to you because it's so pertinent to your spiritual life. And yet, your pastor's a coward. So I don't talk about it. So as soon as I get over myself, as soon as I get over the fear of, oh, what if they don't like me? As soon as I get over that fear and actually obey God, I'll be able to talk about this better. So I need to talk about it. And by the way, if you're sitting there going, this is why I don't want to come to church. After the sermon, I want you to come up to me and go, that's exactly why I don't come to church. Or you can go, you know, I thought you were going to kind of go one way, but you didn't. You kind of went the other way. Let me know. Because what I'm not going to say to you today, what I'm not going to say, Jesus never asked for money. Jesus ne- I'm not going to ask you for money. Jesus never asked. He, a matter of fact, one time he said, uh, do you have a coin? And it was essentially teach about taxes. And he said, here's what you need to do. Give to CC. What is and then he gave the coin back. So you're not going to be sitting there going, oh, I know he's going to ask for money. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to ask for your heart. Turn your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. We're just going to park ourselves on this text for the next three Sundays. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. Can I just, how many of y'all are feeling kind of nervous about the sermon series? Anybody? <laughs> okay. It was encouraging, CC, today, right afterwards. I had a bunch of people came up and think, oh man, that was conviction. That was conviction. I said, Were you offended? No, not at all. But it was really hard to hear. I'm like, great. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. 
says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and be willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We're just going to go verse by verse, word for word. Here we go. First, seven, first Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. Command those who are rich in this present world. Command those who are rich. In this, how many of you guys think you're rich? Oh, wow, the second service may have better perspective. Uh, how many would like to be more rich? <laughs> okay. How many would like to be wealthier? Yes, okay, okay. You know why we think that? Outside of the fact that our culture bombards ourselves with, you need to be richer, you need more money, you're going to need to go to education, certain school, and certain career path. And the reason why we think that is because we never leave the Chicago story, the story of America's story. Do you know what I'm talking about? Here's the United States story. I read this last statistics. They interviewed a bunch of people. 50% of the people responded. Their definition of wealthy is if I make $150,000 a year or more. You think that's depressing? 15% of those people said rich people, there are people who make $1 million or more. These are your fellow Americans last year in this country saying $150,000 makes me wealthy, $1 million. And the reason is because we do not leave the Chicago story, the American story. What do I mean? I was in Columbia two weeks ago, as you know, and I'm sitting there talking to this fella. He's a good friend of mine. He has a BA working on his master's. He's a philosophy professor at the university. I said, how much do you make a month? He makes $692 a month as a professor of a university in Colombia. And I sat there and said, how do, you, how do you get by? To which he had a big smile on his face, you know, because it was the whole, he didn't say it. He's like, you're an American. That's why you say that. Because you know what American story is? College student who works part-time at Starbucks. Do you know how much money you make? And you think you're poor. If you're working at a col- uh, Starbucks, you make per month, 11, okay, annual, you make $11,916 a year. And you go, wow, that's not a lot of money. Worldwide story. Do you know if you make $11,000 a year, that puts you in the 86.7 percentile of the annual income bracket in the world? Say, I don't understand what that means. Next slide, please. That means that 80.6% of the people of the world make less money than you. You go, I still don't know what that means. Here's what this means. According to World Food Bank, there are 6,973,738,433 people in the world. If you make, as a Starbucks part-time college student, $11,000, you are wealthier than 6,039,257,482 people in the world. And yet we sit there and go, what? We go, I am a poor college student making $11,000 a year. Okay, so you make annual income, average annual income. You know what that is? That means you make about... 36000 I know it's a little higher, it's a little outdated, about $3,077 a month. You know what that puts you in? That puts you in the 97 percentile of the annual income bracket. That means you make more money than 96.9 percent people in the world. That means you make more money than 6,757,552,000 people in the world. You still think you're poor. Okay, so you make $50,000 a year. $50,000 a year. Do you know what that puts you in? That puts you in the, next please, 98 percentile of annual income record of people in the world. Can I ask you again? Are you rich? 
Respond to me, please. Are you rich? Yes! And if you make more than $100,000 a year, you're like off the charts. You're like 0.006 percentile. I don't know if that's true. But you're like a tiny, small minority of the people in the world. And yet we go, what? I need more. I need more. I need to be rich. And people all over the world are looking at us going, this guy looking at me going, I make $692 a month, and our family's happy. We have joy. We have peace. And I see Americans making 100 grand, and they're strung out on drugs, alcohol, sex, just to numb the pain. You know, what, what's going on? What's going on? Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that you and I have the entirely wrong perspective on wealth money, and finances. And I'm telling you right now, unless you get this, unless I get this, this isn't about how much you give. This is about your heart. I told you. It's about your heart. Look at what the next verse says. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich, that is you and that is me, in this present world, not to be what? Say it with me. I go, how did Paul know? How did Paul know what you and I think? <laughs> how did Paul know what you and I feel? How did Paul know that as a person gets wealthier, they get arrogant? How does Paul know that as a person gets wealthier, they get more arrogant? Why does that happen? Here's what happens, right? Have you noticed as a person gets wealthier, they think they're smarter? Say, "Uh uh-huh, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) As a person gets wealthier, they think their IQ goes up with their wealth? Can I give you irrefutable proof that that's not true? Two words, Donald Trump. I'm sorry. I know, if you're not a Christian here, you're going, that was really bad. You like totally like ripped it. I know, I know. So I'm going to go home and ask God for forgiveness, but I enjoy that moment when you laugh. Do you know why you laugh? Do you know, do you know why you laugh? Do you know why I laugh? Because we know two things. Number one, we know that when people get more wealthier, they get more arrogant. And secondly, you and I both know that just because you get wealthier doesn't mean you get smarter. But here's the thing. Why does that happen? Why is it happening to some of your coworkers? Why is it happening to some of your coworkers who are going, well, as you're making more money, man, you are awfully, like, painful to be around. Why does that happen? Here's why it happens. Every single human heart. We were born, basically, to self-justify. What do I mean? Self-justify says, I'm going to find my significance, identity, and meaning in the fact that I earn it. I do something about it, so I keep in control. The gospel comes along and says, you're justified by grace, right? Now, here's what happens. When that self-justifying heart, I am somebody because I do X, Y, and Z, when that comes in contact with financial success, do you know what happens? When you're really successful and the self-justifying heart comes in contact with finances, people all of a sudden start going, I am successful here in this area, so therefore I must be successful and know it all in all the other areas of my life. Wealthy people go, my intuition and my smarts got me wealthy here, so therefore my intuition and my smarts about all of these other areas is also true. You see that happening. That's when people get wealthier. They don't just go, oh, I am higher than you socioeconomically. They just go, I am higher than you, period. Do you see that happening to you? When I talk about other people, do you see that happening to you? Do you see that happening to me? Self-justifying heart goes, I'm successful over here, so I made a lot of money, and so therefore, I'm an expert in all of these other, I'm sorry, this is making some of you feel uncomfortable. Um, Hang in there. So I'm successful here, so I'm successful in all of these other, this is the reason why someone said this, this is refreshing. To see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. 
You've been successful in your finances, and all of a sudden your intuition and smarts there got you to a place. Are you generalizing that to all the other areas <laughs> and saying, I'm an expert there, I know there, I know about... The higher up we get socioeconomically. Oh, by the way, uh, the, reason why, the reason why we become arrogant is when you think you're successful and smart in all of these other areas, have you noticed you lose teachability? You notice that, right? You lose teachability. Like you don't learn. And you know what else you do? The wealthier you get, you cocoon yourself with people who will never challenge you. And so you continue to live into the whole, I am successful here, successful everywhere. I am smart here, I'm smart everywhere. We become what? Arrogant. And Paul says, tell those rich people, Americans, not to be arrogant. Just because you're successful, that doesn't... How did he know? Because he's Paul, that's why. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He knows our hearts. Just one, real quick. This is the reason why when you meet someone who is super wealthy and successful, and they're humble as humble could get, you just walk away going... That's amazing. We're surprised. Why? Our hearts are wired just like anybody else's. Are you getting more arrogant or more humble about your success? Next, Paul says what? Uh, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. In Greek, when Paul says, put not, don't put your hope in wealth, he's literally saying, don't put your confidence in, don't put your trust in, don't lean into your wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God. And by the way, he's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to Christians. By the way, if you're a new Christian and you're not a Christian and you're sort of researching Christianity, can I tell you something very, very key? Ultimate competition for your heart when you become a Christian is not going to be between God and devil or God and Satan. The ultimate competition between you and God is going to be your wallet. Yo, where does he say that? I'll show you where he says that. Matthew chapter 6 verse 21. You cannot say this with me. Ready? Serve either or God. That's odd, God. Why would you say money or God? Why not Satan or God? Why did he say, no, you will serve either money or God? Why? No one can serve two masters. And you go, how do we serve money? I don't serve money. I don't have a stack of cash in my room. I'm going, thank you for today. I'm going to go. I don't serve money. What are you talking about? Here's, here's what the Bible says. Come on, y'all. You and I know. Come on. Come on. Be honest. Come on. Nobody does that? Am I the only weird one? I'm just kidding. Okay. Matthew chapter 4, 6, 21. Here Jesus explains it. For where your what? Say with me. Treasure is, there is your heart also. The most important thing Jesus said about money. He says what? When you follow your heart, uh, there's going to be money. Or another way to put it is, when you follow your money, Jesus says, I'm going to get to see what your heart really, really, really worships. Can I tell you something? Don't let what I do on Sundays fool you into thinking that my heart is all that. <laughs> Please. Well, don't let. He's so godly. Look at his Bible. It's so thick. And it's. Please. Please. You want to know how spiritual I am? You want to know where my heart is? Check my MasterCard statement. 
You want to know how spiritual I am and where my heart really is? Check my bank statement. The most important thing Jesus has to say about money is this. Where your money goes, that reveals to you and identifies the idol of your heart that you really and truly live for. Regardless of what you say with your lip service. The thing that's really your God that you find your significant identity in, you will effortlessly pour money into it. Don't even think about it. It's like second nature. It just goes there. And you don't blink. You don't even think twice about it. Do you see that happening to you? Think about some of the most intense passions and desires of your heart. Let me ask you a question. Does money have anything to do with it? Of course it does. You know what my thing is? If you look at my bank account, and Jenny says, she's like, you spent money there again? Like, yeah, I know. It's Amazon. Amazon. Do you know why? I buy books like it's nothing. Just charge. Do, 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 Amazon. Do, 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 do. Really easy, right? 10, 12, 15 books. Boop. 100, couple hundred dollars. Again? Now, here's the thing. I don't have a stack of books that I'm bowing down to going, that's my idol, that's my God. You know what my idol is? My idol is knowledge, expertise. My idol and my God is, I want to be a smart person so I can be a good teacher and a preacher. Because when I'm a good teacher and a preacher, I feel okay about myself. That's what my idol is. And so effortlessly, my money just goes. Where do you effortlessly spend money? Where do you effortlessly pour money into you don't even think twice about? Where? Where? Look. I could make a list out of there, right? Clothes, where we eat, cars, houses, where we like to hang out. Okay, the Bible actually tells us, and we're going to look at real quick, Jesus actually knew our hearts. It was this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the street to be honored by men. They have received their reward in full. So here's a treasure, a heart thing, an idol that gets you with money. It's called a status idol. You know what the status idol is? You know that the status idols that work in your heart if you effortlessly spend money on cars, clothes, houses. Don't even think twice about it. You also know that the status idol is at work in your heart if you effortlessly spend money going out, hanging in such and social circles. Uh, I shared this this morning. I had a guy walk into my office. He's in the banking industry, 28 years old. He's like, Pastor Peter, I'm blowing $3,000 every Friday night. Don't judge. <laughs> don't judge. <laughs> All of a sudden we go, <gasps> don't judge. Because you know what? Let's be real. We're not any better. Listen to what I'm saying. And I said, so why do you do that? His answer was very honest. He said, because in order for me to be in the circles where I have the respect of these guys, that's what I need to do. Satisfidal. It's very important what they think of me. It's very important how they perceive me. So I'm going to blow $3,000. Now, it's all relative. You go, oh, that's a lot of money. But let me ask you, where do you effortlessly spend money? Status idol. By the way, here's another way the status idol, and I know who I'm talking to in our church. It's not everybody, but a lot of you. Here's how you know status idols work in your heart. You ready? You will take jobs that you hate, or you will take jobs that you find unfulfilling, just so that you can make more money. To stay in that income bracket. 
we finish a five-week sermon series on this. Why do you work where you do? Why do you want that job? Why do you want to go to grad school? Why that grad school? Who's telling you to? Status idol. Uh, <clears throat> anybody struggle with this? <laughs> Alyssa, you're the most honest one today. Tell me. Are you kidding? Come on, guys. Here's the second one. Here's the second one. Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your heft and know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, rewards you. Here's the second idol. You ready? It's called the approval idol. You're actually pretty generous. You're actually pretty generous. But you know why you're generous? Because you want to feel good about yourself. You know what this means? Jesus is saying, when you're generous, don't just not tell other people. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand do with it. Don't let your left hand know. What is he saying? He's saying, when you're generous, don't even tell yourself. Don't give to go, you're such a good moral Christian. God's got reward for you in heaven. Oh, you're such, Jesus says, when you do that, listen. He says, if you give and you go, oh, I feel good about myself. He says, well, there was your reward. But what? There was it right there. You feel good about, that was your reward. Are you generous? Or do you give so that you can feel good about yourself? Because you know if you do that, you know what's going to happen? All of a sudden, when people don't respond to you the way you want them to, you start getting kind of mad. You start actually trying to sort of manipulate them a little bit. And then you get resentful when they're not as grateful as you would like them to be. Hmm. (laughs) I see uncomfortable smiles. Approval idol. Here's a third idol. And this is the biggie. This is the biggie. Matthew chapter 6, we keep going. We're not going to read actually the entire, entire text. I want you to go home and read verses 25 to verse 34. But it's this text where he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. And this long, Jesus goes on this rant about your dress, where you live, what car you drive, what donkeys you buy. He goes on this long list about don't worry about what you do, all these things. He says, your father takes care of you. Here's the third idol. It's called a, say it with me, the security idol. John, can I speak on it? This is the reason why someone who's making $30,000 is absolutely no different from someone who's making $300,000. Do you know why? Because you might go, ah, approval idol, that's not me. I'm not generous. Um, Status idol, that's not me. I'm wearing the same clothes I've worn for 10 years. (laughs) Judge, judge, judge. Those pathetic Christians, worldly, materialistic, same shoes, six years, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but the way that you know the security idol is this, you hear about a need and you want to write out a big check for it, and then all of a sudden the fear goes, but what if something happens in the future? That's right, what if something happens in the future? Uh, Security idol does this. I live in a world that's very, very uncontrollable. So I'm going to maintain control of an uncontrollable world. And the way I'm going to do that is to save, is to save, is to save, is to spend more on me, spend more on me, spend more on me. Is to save, is to save. I want certainty. I want security. Let me ask you a question. Can money give you security and certainty? Answer, church. No! Let me put in the most blunt term possible. Money can't control your future. You go, what are you talking about? Money can't stop cancer. Money can't stop relational breakup. 
Money can't stop divorces. Money can't stop car accidents. Money can't stop the economy. Money can't. And yet we go, if I just have enough, I'm not going to be great. I'm not going to be generous. If I save, if I just spend, if I, you know, more and more of myself, we think we can control what happens to the future. Question, who controls the future? Who controls the future? God, it's like, I, but why do we think if we have and save and run and don't spend on other people now, we think we can control the future because we're stupid. It's like we become rich and stupid at the same time. Can I get an amen? What are we thinking? What are we thinking? What are we thinking? We think by our paychecks and our savings, our bank account, you can actually control the future and what happens to you. And we live with this illusion. I'm okay now. I'm secure. Why? I've got money in the Steve Jobs couldn't stop cancer. Where's your security? Where's your security? Where's my security? Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine unscalable wall. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. The wealth of the rich is a fortified city. You know what they're saying? The wealthy people, it's like their wealth, their bank account, stack. They go, this is an unscalable wall. Nothing can touch this. No disease, no famine, nothing can touch this. And we lull ourselves into false insecurity going, because I have money in the bank, nothing. And then all of a sudden, what? Cancer. Traffic accident, parent getting divorced. Oh, I can't. I don't have a job. We live with illusion. If I just save more, I can control. And the Bible says, you think you can keep yourself secure in a fortified city because you have a bank account? Really? Listen, if I, if I came to you and said, hey, uh, uh, let me just pick on somebody. Thaddeus, if I ask anybody else here, hey, how much money do you really need, Thaddeus, to get to a point where you go completely, I'm secure, I'm not worried, I'm not anxious? You know what the answer is for Thaddeus and everybody else? The answer is more than I currently have. That's why when you ask somebody $30,000, making $30,000 a year, when do you think you'll be secure? They go, when I make 50. So you get to 50. And you go, are you secure now? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, whoa, whoa, you said, no, no, no. If I want to be secure, I need to make 75. Okay, get to 75. Are you secure now? No, no. But what happened? 50. And the line keeps moving and moving and moving. You are leaning on something that will never sustain you. You are trusting in something that will never, ever sustain you. I don't even know I'm trying to you know, prove this. Look at the current economic situation. And people who built up their nest again said, ah, nothing can shake. Here's another passage. Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Whoever loves money, that is leaning hard into your money for security. You think your future is all about more and more. You think you can be financially so secure that you can be secure in all the areas of life. And the Bible says the wisest man, Solomon, the wealthiest man says, that is absolutely futile, meaningless. I'll tell you why. Listen, these are real stories. I've had parents in our church who built and saved. This is my friend's security. And then their oldest runs off. The kid runs off. They realize there's no money in the world that's going to bring him back. True story. A single person, young person, saving, secure. This is where finding security. And then the doctor calls. And the doctor says, there's no cure. There's no amount of money that can cure this. It's not about money. It's not about money. True story. Marriage. Couple. By the way, couples fight over one of three things. One of them is money. Husband, counseling session. Counseling session. The husband says, I would do anything to make this marriage work. But he realizes, I can't finance this. I can't put more money into fixing this. There's no money in the world that will make our marriage healthier. I can go on and on and on. What the Bible says when it says, it's not a fortified city. You think it is. I love you, and I need you to listen to me. If you're in that stage in your life where you're going, the security for me is going to be my job and how much I make, I am telling you right now, you are building your life on a stack of playing cards. Oh, no, no, no. Other people ain't touching me. Like I said, we get wealthier and stupider at the same time. Listen to what Paul says. He is, he is warning people right now whose health is fine, saying, don't put your hope there. He is warning people whose marriages are still together and saying, don't put your hope in money. He is warning people whose kids haven't run off yet and saying, don't go there. Don't go there. What does Jesus say? Matthew 6, 19. Do not throw for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves rake in and steal. But sure for yourselves, churches in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. You've got to realize the biggest savings account in the world, biggest bank account, biggest check account in the world, cannot stop broken hearts, cannot stop traffic accidents. It cannot stop cancer. You cannot buy your security. Money can't give you what ultimately only God can give you. See, a lot of people, especially at this age, you know, in the 20s, people think, you know, my self-doubts would go away. You know, I, it's amazing. People think, actually, they would be more secure if they made more money. But it's the opposite. I've seen people who make more money get more insecure. Have you noticed that? You know what else I've noticed? You know what else I've noticed? People who make a lot of money because they want to be in the in crowd now, right? But the worst thing of it all is, I'm talking to them, they go, you know, Pastor Peter, I, I'm like liked by all these people, but they go, I don't know if they like me for me or they like me for my money. And then some people go, well, if I have more, I would worry less. No, if you have more, you would worry more. Why? Because you got more to lose. I'm going to end with four questions. You ready? 
So he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in what? Say this when they put their hope in. Put their hope in. So here are four questions, and we're done. Number one, which of these two statements create the most anxiety in you? There is no God or there is no money. Which of these two statements create more anxiety in you? Okay, show of hands. How many people times I got to do that to you? I do that to you. (laughs) There is no God. I'm the spiritual one. Yes, that creates anxiety. In all seriousness, which of these today, right now, go, if there's no God, I'm good. Bank account, sitting pretty. Or, I may have no money in the bank, but I know who holds the future. Second question. Ready? Um, does fear of not having enough impede your ability, your willingness to give? How many of you this week got really uncomfortable watching the, you know, Hurricane Sandy coverage? Because <laughs> you're going, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Blah, 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 blah. I don't want to know. <laughs> you're watching TV, you know, and hungry children in like Asia come up. You're like, change the channel. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. How many? Why? Because you know what? You and I get convicted and we pull out our checkbooks and we go, <gasps> but then the thought comes like, oh, I don't talk, but I rainy day, a rainy day. You know what that means? That means you're leaning into your money. It's what you're trusting. Do you know why as people make more money, they give less? Because if you make $10 and you tithe, it's a dollar. You're going, it's a dollar. Get me a candy bar for a dollar. Can't even buy coffee these days. Eh, here you go, Lord. You make $100, $10, dollars It's like two vanilla lattes, so, oh, shoot. Okay. All right. I love you more than vanilla latte, God. God's going, well, thank you so very much. Okay. <laughs> and you make $1,000 and hundred. $100. It's $100, man. That's a, but I love you, Jesus, $100, $100, you know, go knock yourself out, like decorate heaven or something, right? Because okay, here's $100. Then we make 10000 and you know what? You take out checkbook, and you start writing that one, zero, zero, zero. And all of a sudden, this thing comes over, and you're going, <gasps> you know, I could do so much more with 1000 than I could do with 900 which is so stupid to be honest. $900, you know what that's like? Let me give you, let me give you a picture. I'm trying to teach my kids to give. And so each Sunday, I give them a dollar bill. The first Sunday, I'll never forget, I gave my son Parker a dollar bill. He took it. He goes, I go, Parker, now make sure you give to Jesus. He took it. He goes, yeah, but if I give this, I won't have any more left. I said, no, no, don't worry about it, Parker. I'm going to give you a dollar every week. He goes, yeah, but what if we run out? And I thought, Jesus, that's me. It all belongs to him. And I'm giving and I'm going, well, if I give, I'm not going to have any left. And God's going, I own the universe. I own the universe. And you think I'm going to run out because you give a dollar? Pass Angel, are you feeling me? Third question. <laughs> Do you have money in your bank but not peace in your heart? Do you know how much peace you can squeeze out of your money? Answer? Zero. 
You can squeeze out some good times with money. You could squeeze out some pictures with money. Post on Facebook. You could squeeze out some whatever. But you will never be able to squeeze out peace from your money because you can't find peace in your money. Never. Have you noticed um, in my travel, see, see, I'm almost done. Come on. Have you traveled, you know, I, I, again, I was in Colombia. Colombia is like a third world country. But have you, have you noticed how people who have nothing resonate with joy and hope and peace? And they'll give their shirt off their back to you. And yet, Americans, you and me, who have more than what most people in the world would ever hope for, trying to squeeze out peace and joy and hope where it can't be found. Does that make any sense to you? And yet, We're doing it every day. Here's the last question. How hard is it for you to do the right thing when it's going to cost you financially? One of the saddest moments for me as a pastor was when a 29-year-old investment banker came to my office and said, Pastor Peter, you know what I long for? And I was thinking, I don't know, you know, some grand. You know what he said? He goes, I long just to put my head on the pillow at night and just get a good night's sleep. I'm like, do you can't get good night's sleep he says no why because i'm making all kinds of compromises at work and what i do and i've got all the money in the world in the bank driving the car that most people die for and yet i've got zero peace in my life i just want to one night just one night just and that's some of you Wow. We're going to say this together. I'm going to say it first, and then you repeat after me. I will not trust in my riches, but in him who richly provides. Say it one more time. I will not trust in my riches, but in him who richly provides. Jesus says you will serve God or money. That means if God is not your God, if you're not trusting God with your money, then you're trusting your money and your money is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. It will devastate you. Worse yet, it will rule over you. It will enslave you. I will not trust in my riches, but in Him who richly provides. I will not trust in my riches, but in Him who richly provides, I will not trust in my riches, but in Him who richly provides. As you go forward this week and you work hard and you make money, remember remember who sits on the throne remember who has entrusted you as a steward of the resources that you have let God speak to you about what it means to be a generous person what it means to give radically generously so that the world will take notice he loves you he is for you he goes behind you beside you for you and to lead you. May the love of our Christ 
in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, all of God's people said, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week, you guys.